0: Good evening, everyone. Thank you for coming this evening. And welcome to the Pratt Library. I'm Judy Cooper, the coordinator of public programs, and we're really delighted to see you here for this um, special edition of our Sustainable Speakers Series. This is a program that we initiated three years ago um, in partnership with Baltimore Greenworks. And um, I'm pleased to say that in those three years, this is the 10th one of our. Speakers, and so um, it's a special night, and we're glad that you're here, Eric, to um, help us celebrate. So, um, these are we do two or three of these a year, and we really look forward to your suggestions for other programs. And if there are people you'd like to have us um, who would fit into this theme, we'd certainly appreciate hearing from you. Um, and I'm going to turn the mic over real quickly to Jennifer Morgan, who is President of the Baltimore Greenworks Board. Jamie? Thanks. Um, I'm
1: only going to talk very briefly because I don't like to do it at all. Um, but I have to give you some numbers. Judy already gave you that this was the tenth of our speaker series with the Pratt. This is the fifth anniversary of our starting the extra programs for Baltimore Greenworks. It's our um, tenth anniversary for Baltimore Green Week and the organization itself. So it's a big year for us. We have a lot going on. I hope that everybody goes to the websites and takes a look and to see what's coming up. Um, stop laughing at me. <laughs> Anyway, so Judy asked me to um, invite someone to introduce Eric, and so I thought, who should come and introduce Eric? So I went back into the, the archives of uh, who the old tree planters are in Baltimore, and uh, Beth Stroman popped into my head, and I said, I never ask you for anything, so you're going to do this, aren't you? Right. So she wrote the Forest Conservation Plan for Baltimore a very long time ago has planted many trees she is currently the director of the office of sustainability for the city of Baltimore
2: and my friend it's because I'm Jen's friend that I know when she said she doesn't like to talk No, that is so not true okay <laughs> I was like really <laughs> Well, thank you for inviting me uh, to uh, introduce Eric Rutkow. Um, You know, this is a really great book, and I think the timing is fantastic because I think we're we're at the verge of a whole new way of looking at trees and our forests um, from the perspective of sustainability. And you can't really move forward with the best foot if you really don't understand your past and what shaped you. So I think the timing of this is, is perfect. Um, So, the the book we're going to talk about today is really about how trees shaped us, but in turn how we shaped them, not for the positive I think in most cases, Um, and how important. This is something I've been working with and loving my trees for a very long time and it never dawned on me how important they were to the foundation of America and our culture Um, including because we had such dense and beautiful forests, this concept that um, natural resources were endless and we could waste everything. Um, And, uh, you know, you think about it, you say, oh, yeah. You know, um, in Europe, they sure don't act that way. Um, I enjoy the fact that this book is both intellectual in terms of its facts and has many fun tree tales to back them up. And all I'm going to ask is if... My favorite is the one about the... Shipment of the 2000 Cherry Trees to Nellie Taft. Because being a government bureaucrat, what happened with that just cracks me up. That's all I can say. All right, and then one of my favorite sort of quotes about the book was that the trees are perhaps the loudest silent figures in our country's history. And I believe that actually there are the loudest silent figures in our future in terms of sustainability, Uh, climate change, and really, you know, saving the earth, quite frankly. Um, From the perspective of sustainability, they're being appreciated in different ways and as a different type of resource, or as I say it, we're going to love them for who they are, not what they are, okay? And who are our trees just by being themselves, without anything else? They purify the air, they clean our water, they absorb carbon, Improve public safety. I have studies that show that, and health. I also have studies that show that trees reduce the incidence of asthma in kids. Okay, we forget the board feet. You know, we don't need that. We just need them to be alive. So, who's this Eric? What guy from? You know, so I was looking at his uh, his bio here. Okay, he's really smart. He he graduated from Yale. Then he decided to go to Harvard Law School. And I guess, are you having war with yourself? Because don't those schools hate each other? I really blue. <laughs> blue, oh. And, uh, but now he's back at Yale getting a doctorate in American history. So you can believe whatever he says in this book. He's really smart. So, on that, thank you, Eric, for coming to Baltimore.
3: Okay, so so a lot of thank yous. Um, thanks for that great introduction. Um, that takes the cake. I think your introduction might be better than the talk I'm about to give. So <laughs> I, I don't think I've ever actually been outdone that way, but but I, it's good to set the bar high. Um, so thank you um, to the Pratt Library and um, to the Sustainable Speaker Series, Baltimore Greenworks. This is um, I'm very excited to be here. I didn't realize I was the 10th speaker, but um, that is great to know. So I will try to elevate the talk for that as well. And thank you to all of you for coming. Um, So I hope um, that my talk tonight can be both informative uh, but also entertaining. Um, This is not going to be an attempt to really explain everything in this book. The book is long enough as is. Um, It's going to be an effort to share some of my favorite stories. Um, so, So tonight... What I, what I hope to do is to really have us look at our landscape with, with fresh eyes. Um, normally we might think about trees as objects located in space, but but we're going to think about them as objects that also exist in time. And we're going to look at the forest not as static backdrops to society, but as places that are alive and dynamic. And we're going to think about trees not just as passive players in in a human drama, but as important actors that have shaped us as much as we have shaped them. So I didn't always think about trees this way. Um, I first became interested in trees when I was a teenager. I, I got interested in tree identification in a casual way, and I think this is the way a lot of people start. You pick up a book, try to learn the names of the trees. For me, I wanted to know the street trees and the trees in the forest where I would be going backpacking. And as I'd read these tree guides, I'd find these historical tidbits that would be lurking around the edges. Um, So just a few examples here. American elms, um, as I talk about in the book, were once the most common urban tree in America before Dutch elm disease decimated their numbers. Black walnuts, um, another tree whose... Incidents has decreased because the wood was so prized for its use in furniture, for its veneers, it was considered one of the most richly textured woods. And I will also say, though very few of us eat them these days, black walnuts are also delicious and if you ever encounter them, they're very expensive but I recommend you give them a try. Um, and the flowering cherry, I'm sad to say I wasn't planning on telling that story at great length. It is an unbelievable story though. Flowering cherry trees are from Japan. Um, They first arrived in the United States in in 1910 as part of an effort by a number of dedicated people, some working for the government, another, a famous travel writer, um, and the First Lady, Nellie Taft, herself. And when the first shipment showed up, it was found to be infested under circumstances that some have thought were very political. And we actually burned the first shipment of 2,000 trees, nearly sparking a very serious international incident that was nearly averted through careful diplomacy. Um, so these sorts of historical facts, um, I don't know that, that entire cherry tree story fact was sort of hiding at the margins, but these facts, um, they, they really sort of grabbed me and got me thinking about the importance of history in understanding our relationship to nature. And so the book that I would write would gradually develop out of a desire to think about this relationship broadly and and an idea of trying to reinterpret the American past with an eye towards our interaction with trees. So one of the things that I started doing was not just asking myself about the histories inside of these trees but familiar aspects of American identity and myth and culture that I knew relatively little about. So just a few examples of what I mean Johnny Appleseed, the great tree planter, who was actually a real figure. Paul Bunyan, the legendary lumberjack, and this is actually the first postcard that introduced the modern legend of Paul Bunyan from the early 1900s. Arbor Day, a holiday created in America in 1872, and of course, the National Forests. Surely, I thought, there must be a story here, Uh, some sort of connective tissue that if I could bring it all together could shine new light on American history. And perhaps help explain some of the problems and challenges that we face in our present day. So I began researching into this relationship of trees in US history um, and what I found really did surprise me, this narrative that I imagined might be there began to cohere around this curious relationship. Uh, It wasn't always a straightforward story, there were just too many people and places and lands, but I could sense that there would be something there. First, Trees allowed me a way to revisit many of the most familiar moments in American history and find new insights. But secondly, the trees seem to offer up a distinct narrative of their own, one that in many ways gotten lost amongst these expanses of time and space. So the key for the book would be trying to combine these two elements, take the narrative that we all are familiar with and put trees into it, and bring forth this lesser-known narrative of forests in America. An early breakthrough for me came when I discovered Richard Hacklett. Um, He was the archdeacon of Westminster Abbey in England and considered the greatest geographer in Europe at the turn of the 17th century. He's best known for this work here, known as the Principal Navigations. Um, This was one of the most important books from the period. It was a collection of all the voyages that had been recorded of anyone who had visited North America. I'd first encountered Hacklett while trying to understand the role that America's forests had played in the English decision to settle there. Hacklett was what we might think of as the intellectual engine behind the first permanent English colonial venture in North America, which was known as the Virginia Company. You can see here, this is a a plate from a church window. This was the group that would receive the initial colonization charter from King James I in 1605. Now, the importance of this group tends to get lost when we think about early America, early English experience. We tend to talk about Pocahontas in Virginia or the pilgrims in Massachusetts, but actually both of those settlement operations would grow out of the Virginia Company's charter. So, I started reading Hacklitch's writings looking for clues about why the English came to North America. Not only did he acknowledge the importance of trees, but he rhapsodized about them for countless pages The trees of this strange land, he suggested, were a treasure to value above all others, including things like fish and furs or gold and silver. Chopping them down would provide immediate work for settlers and the wood could then be shipped back to England. It might seem strange to hear that England would seek out something as common as wood in the early 17th century, but but remember that it had a limited amount of forest land, that wood was among the most versatile materials for all sorts of goods, Um, that coal had not yet replaced wood as a source of fuel and that the largest ships in the rapidly growing British Navy required 2,000 mature oak trees in their construction. So given all this, we can understand why Hacklett wrote the following. So that there were no other peculiar commodities, this one only, I say, were enough to defray all the charges of all the beginning of the enterprise and that out of hand. So just to sort of interpret this and modernize it a little bit, Hacklett is essentially saying that the potential revenue from trees was enough to justify the venture. So America's trees are, as I argue in the book, one of the main reasons that the English actually decided to settle in North America. And the story of Hacklet is where the book's main narrative begins. So Hacklet became the first of many people and trees that I would turn to as guides along the way in trying to tell this story. Um, And so what I'd like to do tonight is just sort of introduce you to a few of them, share some of the stories that that I find sort of particularly illuminating. Um, It's a diverse list of characters. Some of these people are going to be very familiar, um, but we're going to look at them in new ways. Other people are going to be likely known to very few, um, if any of us. So let's begin with the person who was perhaps the first tree authority in the American colonies, John Bartram. He's a Quaker born in 1699 in Pennsylvania, relatively close to Philadelphia he would live. And as a young man, he had an interest in medicine. And in the colonial era, being interested in medicine meant also being very interested in botanicals. So this was true for many colonial era physicians. For instance, Caspar Wister, who um, was a Quaker physician also from Pennsylvania, is um, the namesake of the plant Wisteria. But what would set Bartram apart from his contemporaries like Worcester, uh, not quite contemporaries but near contemporaries, was that he abandoned his medical career quite early to pursue botanizing full time. And in 1729, he sets out a small arboretum near Philadelphia and begins to stock it with specimens that he collects on botanizing trips throughout the colonies. This was no simple task. Bartram would risk life and limb in pursuit of specimens. And indeed, his his diaries recall several close scrapes in the forest where he came very close to serious harm, if not death. Um, Eventually, news of his growing collection reached Europe, where a gardening fad at the time was driving a huge demand for imported American trees. Bartram would become the main American supplier to this thriving trade, and the revenue that he would generate from this helped him to expand his botanizing work. As his knowledge grew, so too did his ambitions for colonial science. And at this point, science in the colonies was in an infant phase. The colonies lagged woefully behind Europe in almost all matters of serious scientific inquiry. And in the early 1740s, Bartram teamed up with another prominent Pennsylvanian, Benjamin Franklin, in order to address this deficiency. Together they would found the American Philosophical Society, which would be the first organization in America devoted to promoting scientific discovery across the colonies. Thus, we might say that the entire project of organized science in America came about indirectly as a result of the country's first arboretum. Now... Many famous Americans would visit Bartram's Arboretum. In fact, you can still go and visit it today, as it it still exists. Um, Here we can see a painting depicting one of the most famous visitors. And I should say, it's no accident that George Washington would have found himself at Bartram's garden. Now, most of us probably learned about George Washington as being a tree murderer. It would be hard to have made it through the American school system if you grew up in this country or, frankly, if you grew up in other countries without hearing at least once of the fate of a cherry tree that had the misfortune of encountering a young George Washington. And after the damage has been done and his father finds out and approaches the young boy, he says the immortal words, Father, I cannot tell a lie. I cut the tree. So there's a nice message that I'm sure we've all learned from this story about being responsible for your actions and being honest. Of course, that doesn't mean any part of this story took place. The tale of Washington and the Cherry Tree was fabricated by an early biographer who was trying to humanize a leader seen as distant and also trying to boost book sales. So poor George gets labeled a tree killer when really nothing could be farther from the truth as his visit to Bartram's garden would suggest. In, in reality, Washington was a man enraptured by aesthetic beauty, and he devoted much of his free time to tree planting and horticulture in general. Over the course of his life he would transform his estate at Mount Vernon into a shaded oasis. In fact, during the years between his serving as general in the Continental Army and serving as the nation's first president, he'd often pass whole days planting trees or surveying the land for fine specimens. He was particularly fond of native varieties, and his journal from the time are filled with references to things like thriving ash trees and very fine young poplars and young crab trees of all sizes and handsome. So history tends to separate Washington's life at Mount Vernon from his roles as general or president, but in truth, they were never far apart. For instance, in August 1776, as Washington was days away from the Battle of Long Island, which would be the largest fight of the Revolutionary War, he wrote to his estate manager with great specificity about the ways that new trees ought to be planted. And he says, quote, these trees ought to be planted without any order or regularity, but pretty thick as they can be thinned at any time. And while many have speculated at the reasons Washington chose to step down from power after his second term as president, I would argue that much of the answer can actually be found amongst Mount Vernon's trees. When Washington did retire in 1797, he was able to return to a landscape that he had spent half a century cultivating, where the trees were finally creating a mature canopy. As Washington would write to a friend late in his life, quote, Those trees which my hands have planted by their rapid growth at once indicate a knowledge of my declining years and their disposition to spread their mantles over me before I go hence to return no more. For this their gratitude, I will nurture them while I stay. So this is a side of Washington that we often don't hear about. But Washington was certainly not the only president who would mix political culture with tree culture. So let's take a huge jump forward from the 18th century to the 20th to talk about another president, this one by the name of Roosevelt. Now many of you might be assuming that the Roosevelt in question would be Teddy Roosevelt, and this would certainly be understandable because it was during his presidency that the Forest Service was created, and we can see him here on a ship with his closest confidant, the chief forester Gifford Pinchot. My book deals with Teddy Roosevelt at length, but right now I actually want to focus on the other Roosevelt, his cousin Franklin, whose relationship with trees and forests is is much less well-known. Now, not only was FDR our longest-serving president, but he was also a man obsessed with trees and tree planting. And and I, I don't use the term obsessed lightly. In 1944, when Roosevelt would go to vote, he actually lists his occupation officially as tree grower. Not president, not lawyer, not commander of the armed forces, but tree grower. So why would he do such a thing, we might ask? Over the course of his lifetime, he oversaw the planting of approximately half a million trees on his family's estate in New York. This had begun as an effort to restore the quality of the land, to restore soil after years of declining productivity. But Roosevelt came to derive great pleasure from planting trees. In fact, during the years that he spent recovering from polio, one of his favorite activities was to drive through the forest surrounding his family's estate. He even had special trails cut to make this easier. And we can see this is a relatively recent photo of a road going through Um, a forest near FDR's estate, and when FDR ascended to the nation's highest office, he made trees the centerpiece of his presidency. This might sound like a strange claim, it's not the way we usually tell the tale of FDR's presidency, but the facts certainly bear it out. One of the first major pieces of legislation he championed was for the creation of the Civilian Conservation Corps, a program that would put millions of young men in the nation's forests to plant trees and improve the landscape. In fact, they would become known as Roosevelt's tree army. Roosevelt saw that tree planting had the potential to provide immediate jobs while investing in the future. So in this respect, we might well say that the New Deal, the biggest expansion of the federal government in American history, began in large part with trees. At the same time, FDR could, to a certain extent, get carried away with his love for trees and what he imagined they could do, the problems that they could solve. At one point, he suggested planting a 100 mile wide forest all the way, across the high plains, all the way from the Canadian border down through Texas. It was his belief that such a forest could help combat the Dust Bowl, which was the worst ecological disaster of the 1930s. The trees, he argued, would impede the wind currents that stripped off the desiccated topsoil and produced black blizzards that could sweep all the way to the Atlantic, raining dust across places like Washington, D.C., possibly Baltimore as well, New York, and even ships in the Atlantic. The most remarkable thing about this scheme, which would become known as the Shelter Belt um, or the Prairie States Forestry Project, was that it was actually attempted. And this is a publicity poster from the New Deal. It became one of the most controversial political programs in the New Deal before Congress finally killed it. Um, But FDR was actually trying to bring it back until his last days. Um, There are letters from three days before he would die in 1945 when he's asking for more information about what can be done to revive this program. Okay now, so we've been talking about politics and now I want to shift gears to talk about environmental thinking. Perhaps it goes without saying that trees would play an important role in the development of environmental thinking in America. After all, the development of America has largely come about through the chopping and burning down of our forests. So here we can see an approximation, a rough approximation of um, the decline in primary forests from 1620 from the early English settlements up through the present day. We can see it, it, it declining from somewhere near a billion acres to just a few scattered stands, virtually nothing in the east. Um, And even if we were to just look at overall forest and start with this rough estimation of 1620 to today, you can still see that that there's large patches that are no longer forested. In fact, our present day, it's estimated that we have around 200 million acres of less forest than than the continent did at the time of European arrival. So, So what I'd like to do is show just sort of two illustrations of how these Gradual but dramatic shifts in the nation's forest cover impacted environmental thinkers. I'm going to start with Henry David Thoreau, who's often considered the first significant environmental thinker in America. He was something of an iconoclast, um, as many great thinkers are. He didn't smoke or drink, he never married, he didn't go to church, and he famously introduced the concept of civil disobedience. He's probably best known for his book Walden which is a collection of nature essays based on two years that he spent living in the woods near his home in Concord, Massachusetts. Um, I'm sure that many of you here have read it and if you haven't I would encourage you to give it a look right after you read American Canopy. Um, And this is actually a plate from the first edition. I like this because it makes it clear the subtitle is Life in the Woods and you can see this illustration of a cabin that Thoreau actually built himself surrounded by trees. Subsequent additions don't make this quite as apparent. Now, it's often said that Thoreau retreated to the woods to escape from the excesses of modern society. And this is certainly true. But what few people realize in telling this story is that the woods were not such an easy thing to find in Thoreau's day. Our eastern forests have returned to such a great extent that it's difficult to imagine that at one point many parts of New England were almost wholly deforested and had been turned into farms. So Concord was a, was a very strong example of that, where an estimated forest cover around 90 to 95 percent had dropped to somewhere around 10 or 15 percent, an all-time low in Thoreau's day. In fact, only four tracts of woodland remained near the town, and these were largely woodlots that were used to provide firewood. So it was, in many ways, the profound absence of trees that provoked Thoreau's behavior. His retreat to Walden Pond, which was actually one of these few forested zones remaining, was less about escaping to the forest than clinging to the the small fraction of forest that still remained. And Thoreau would continue studying trees throughout his life. In fact, it was during a long night he spent counting tree rings in a storm that he aggravated an old case of tuberculosis, and this would ultimately kill him in 1862 at the age of 44. Okay, so much like I jumped with Washington and, and, and Roosevelt across a long stretch of time to show some of these connections, I want to do the same thing and move forward now about 100 years from an early environmentalist to a figure who was, played a key role in jumpstarting the modern environmental movement. Here I'm talking about Senator Gaylord Nelson, um, who was from Wisconsin and was the founder of Earth Day. Nelson grew up in Clear Lake, Wisconsin, which was in the north portion of the state that fell within the zone that had been almost entirely clear-cut by the lumber industry in the late 19th century. And, And this region still bore these deep scars of what had happened to it during Nelson's childhood. And growing up, in this type of degraded environment, Nelson developed a strong conservationist ethic. So he entered state politics as a young man and during his tenure as governor, he put conservation at the top of his agenda. In particular, he he drove through an ambitious piece of legislation that used a penny tax on cigarettes to fund the state purchase of land for recreation and wilderness purposes. Eventually, um, Wilson would—excuse uh, me—Nelson would become a U.S. senator, and he would carry this conservation message to Washington. He would convince JFK to take a multi-state conservation tour in 1963, um, and and ultimately he found that this tour had much less effect than he had hoped. People were more concerned with asking Kennedy about Cold War politics, and Nelson continued to try to figure out how to raise awareness at the national level of this conservation message. In the summer of 1969, he had a flash of inspiration. Why not use the teachings that had been so popular in campus anti-war activism to spread a message about environmentalism? Barely eight months later, this idea would be transformed into Earth Day, which was the largest mass demonstration in the history of the United States. It's estimated that roughly 20 million people participated in the first Earth Day in 1970. I should say, that Earth Day was not just about trees. In fact, in many ways, it was about changes that had been happening in the environment, in the landscape, and in American thinking and politics throughout the course of the post-war years. In fact, for better or worse, Earth Day would really displace Arbor Day, um, which was a different holiday, a holiday I deal with at great length in the book that goes back to the 19th century and is strictly about tree planting. But the point I'm trying to make with Nelson is that there's little doubt that Earth Day that was his brainchild and that his life, by his own admission, was profoundly shaped through his boyhood in the cutover district of Wisconsin. In fact, when he retired from federal politics, he took a job as a special advisor to the Wilderness Society where he would continue working to protect forests from development. So thus far... I've been focusing more on the individual people than on individual tree species. And perhaps you're sort of wondering, well, where are the trees in this story? And so I I should assure you that there are plenty of remarkable trees to meet. Um, As as, as, as I say and and has been mentioned in the introduction, I see them as the loudest silent figures in our nation's complicated history. Um, So with the time I have left, I just want to introduce you to a few of my favorite trees, historically speaking. So, on the left, we can see an illustration of an eastern white pine. I'm sure that most of us are familiar with this tree. It's still a very common tree in backyards and parks and parts of the forest. Um, And and for many of us on the East Coast, the eastern white pine might be what we think of when we just think of the class of pine trees just broadly. Um, And so, while you may have seen many white pines in your life, I can almost assure you that you've never seen any like the ones that the earliest European settlers encountered. The white pines of um, the primary forests of New England could grow to prodigious heights, possibly as much as 250 feet There are still a few stretches of these kind of old-growth forests left in the east, very, very few indeed, but there are still a few. Um, I've been able to visit a couple of them, and it is really remarkable to see a pine tree soaring to nearly 200 feet. Um, These would have been the tallest trees that Europeans had ever set eyes on. The great size made them especially suitable for shipmasts. In fact, many shipwrights, Many shipwrights felt that they were the best source of mast in the entire world during the era of wooden ships. And by the early 18th century, the British crown had claimed ownership over nearly all of the white pines that could be found in the colonies. So what we can see here is an illustration of a royal timber surveyor, the man on horseback, um, who is surveying, he's surveying a tree and he's marking it with this here. The king's broad arrow, three strikes of an axe that looks like a crow's foot or an upward-turned arrow. For nearly a hundred years, a battle was fought in the woods of New England between the royal surveyors and the colonists over who should control these trees. Colonists chafed at the notion that they couldn't actually own property outright insofar as trees were concerned. And when the Revolutionary War came, one of the first steps that colonists took was to terminate the trade in white pines, leaving many British ships without suitable masts, a fact that wreaked havoc with the Royal Navy. Some historians have even pointed to this as a decisive factor in the Revolutionary War. Now, the white pines of New England might have been the largest trees that the Europeans had ever seen, but they were practically dwarves compared to some of the conifers that grew in America's Western forests. And the king of them all was the giant sequoia. Europeans first discovered this species in 1852, and the story goes that there was a hunter who was working to provide meat for um, one of the early gold mining camps. And he was tracking a bear that, uh, he had shot the bear and injured and he follows it deep into the woods through the Sierra Nevada mountains, and suddenly he finds himself surrounded by what are literally the largest natural objects on earth. Trees that could be more than 30 feet across at their base and 300 feet tall. In fact, there were single branches on these trees that would be as thick as the trunks of the great eastern white pines. When the hunter returns to the camp and tries to tell the men about what he found, no one believes him at first. And uh, so he concocts a story and convinces the party to follow him, and finally, they realized that though they were living in a land of tall tales, this was no exaggeration. These really were the most massive trees on earth. It didn't take long after Americans discovered this remarkable grove for them to go ahead and chop one down. So, so what I've put here is actually an illustration from the 1850s, um, and you can see quite, quite prominently at front, the stump of the felled tree serving as a platform, and this platform was apparently large enough to uh, host a dance where 32 people danced as couples. They danced a cotillion there, um, and the entire site, this initial site of the big trees in California, would become one of California's premier early tourist attractions. Over the years, visitors um, would include Ralph Waldo Emerson and Teddy Roosevelt and Howard Taft. Many people drew a connection between the greatness of America and the greatness of these trees. As one European wrote, quote, It is only in a country like America which can produce these mammoth enormities in whole forestfuls. But like many trees, the sequoias were immediately under threat from the relentless pressures for land and lumber. Without protection, it seemed certain that Americans would swiftly wipe out trees that had, in some cases, taken 3,000 years to reach maturity. The federal government in this period was not in the habit of protecting land, certainly not without a strong economic or military reason. But in 1864, after a long campaign by concerned citizens, President Lincoln signed an act providing for some protection of uh, the most famous Sequoia Grove at the time. And it's sort of interesting, you know, we have the movie that's come out now, Lincoln, and, and obviously at the centerpiece of Lincoln's presidency is the slavery question. But it's interesting to note that one of the earliest pieces of federal conservation legislation would also be passed under his watch in the midst of the Civil War. So we, we can in some ways see that, that bit of protecting the sequoias as the forerunner to, to later projects like the national forests and the national parks that would become such large political products in the late 19th and early 20th century. Okay, so finally let's move from the largest trees in the world to the oldest trees in the world, which once again are found exclusively in the United States. These are the bristlecone pines, indomitable specimens that can be found near the timberline of several mountain chains in the southwestern United States. John Muir, The great preservationist and naturalist once described them as offering, quote, a richer and more varied set of forms to the artist than any conifer I know of. And while Muir might have appreciated that these trees were indeed special, he likely didn't realize quite how much, because it was only in the 1920s that scientists identified them as the oldest living objects on Earth. Some individuals could reach estimated ages around 4,500 years old. So to put this in perspective, it means that some trees were beginning to grow right about the time that mankind was inventing a written language, before even the age of the Egyptian pharaohs. Now, I was initially surprised to discover that anything in nature could actually live to be that old, but the real shocking revelation for me came when I found out that Americans had actually chopped down the oldest specimen of all, an ancient being known as Prometheus. This happened in 1964 in the name of scientific investigation and it was only after the tree had been chopped down that researchers realized to their dismay that the tree contained 4,844 rings, making it the oldest bristlecone ever discovered. At the time this happened, the scientists assumed that if they had unintentionally chopped down the oldest one to date that it was likely that they would find even older ones soon enough. But it's been nearly 50 years and we've actually yet to find a new Prometheus. So it's an important lesson I suppose that some changes just simply can't be undone. Interestingly, the killing of Prometheus was um, was done in an effort to learn more about how climate had changed historically. And now in our present moment, it's changes to the climate that may well be threatening the ancient bristle cones. As the climate shifts, these ancient beings that are so suited to this climate that they can survive for nearly 5,000 years are finding that the climate is moving and it, and it may have a real impact on their long-term survival. Of course, the potential shifts brought about by climate change, and this is actually the last section I talk about in my book, had the potential to impact all types of trees in, in, in really all all parts of the earth. Um, so the bristlecone is the last tree that I'm gonna discuss in depth today, but, but I wanna assure you there are dozens more trees and people to meet along the way. Uh, apple trees that made America's favorite drink in the colonial era, hard cider. Um, mutated naval orange trees which traveled from Brazil through Washington DC and route to California were two trees became the seed for an entire industry, became the seed for millions of grafted trees that would spread out across Southern California. Sitka spruce trees in the Pacific Northwest, which would hold the key to the Allied victories in World War I. American chestnut trees, perhaps the most common hardwood tree in the eastern United States, now nearly eradicated due to the chestnut blight in the early 20th century. And of course, there are dozens of historical figures, remarkable people to meet as well, Eliza Skidmore, the travel writer who would campaign for 25 years to bring cherry trees, Japanese flowering cherry trees to Washington. Saul Dacus, a black logger in Louisiana who found himself at the front of uh, the fight for unionization in 1919. Chico Mendes, the Brazilian rubber topper whose murder in the 1980s turned him into an icon for the Save the Rainforest movement that swept the nation. And I want to stress that this book is not just about vignettes. I I try to use stories and biographies to illustrate broad developments in American history and, and to raise these large questions about our relationship with nature. Who should control natural resources? What do we mean by wilderness? How much of what we think of as nature has actually been created by man? How natural are natural disasters? And what role does the environment play in shaping who we are as a nation and as a people. There are certainly lessons from the past to apply to the present. We've often come to appreciate what we've had only after we've lost it, and I think Prometheus really provides the best example of that. Um, But but sometimes we've made short-term sacrifices to ensure long-term environmental stability, such as the protection of the giant sequoias and later the national forests, These are often halfway measures, but but they're certainly better than no measures at all. Um, And we've really changed the forests far more than many of us realize Um, through disease, through fires, through logging, through um, really all sorts of changes, through trade over time where foreign trees brought in from other countries have naturalized and, and begun to repopulate our forests. I'm certain that the forests and trees of the future are going to look very different than the forest of our present day, just as our present forests and our treescapes look remarkably different from those in the past. The question that we face is how do we direct that change? And, And to understand where we should go, it helps to learn a bit about how we got there. And so hopefully my book can explain a little bit of that story. If I've done my job well, then American canopy can really transform the way you see the world around you just as as the way that my sort of discovery of trees in history has changed the way that I see the landscape. Um, And and perhaps it will keep you entertained and maybe even make a few friends uh, along the way. So thank you very much and I'm happy to take questions. Who mm-hmm.
0: thinks the trees coming down hitting people's houses and making people get rid of trees more often now
3: so yeah, this is a really this is a big issue in the news that we're dealing with all across the east is sort of the story of urban tree planting um so one of the biggest issues is is much like so much in our history, the conflict is really between power lines that are above ground and trees that are going to continue to grow so This is sort of a story where it's a landscape of conscious choices that we've made and we're now dealing with the fallout from that. Um, The deeper question in some ways is are we entering a new phase of more serious storms where if the last two years are any indication, this might become a constant problem. Um, There are several ways to address this problem. One way is to change the trees that we plant. In fact, I had recently received a mailer from my utility company telling me which trees we should be planting in New Haven and all the trees that they're suggested to top off at about 15 feet. Um, the, uh, you know, another alternative, obviously, is to move power lines underground, but this is an incredibly expensive operation. So it once again becomes a question of what are we willing to spend in terms of creating an environment that we want to have, that what kind of environment we want to live with Um, So it's a tricky question. I don't think that there are straightforward answers. And of course the other thing to to mention is that trees are living objects, which means that when you plant trees in an urban environment, you do sometimes have to maintain them. You do have to trim them. We've had um, in New York City, there's been a recent spate of problems where the failure to maintain the trees, there have been several deaths in Central Park of falling branches. So um, I'm obviously on the side of urban tree planting, the value of urban trees so far exceeds the the, the cost of not having trees that it strikes me as being a no-brainer, but it is something that requires management. Um, This is true of really any environment, particularly urban environments, and I think there are probably some people in this room that have more expertise on the specifics of something like Baltimore. I think we know full well of Baltimore tree planting, but um, as a general matter, These are questions that I think cities across the United States are dealing with, and if if the trends we're seeing are part of climate change, then these are going to become even more challenging and more serious conversations that we need to have.
1: Uh, I have a question about about, um, chestnuts. I do see some, you said that they were wiped out, right? But I do see some growing, for instance, over on the Bolton Street, um, the, the flowering chestnuts but are those the ones that you're referring to? And the other question mm-hmm. is, the deer seem to be eating all the, at least out where we live, um, the, the, the oak seedlings or anything that's little. And so is that going to become the next
3: chestnut? That's what I Sure. Um, those are great questions. So the, f- the first question is asking, um, if chestnut blight wiped out all the chestnuts, how come I'm seeing flowering chestnuts? Um, so I'll start with that one. And the second question is about deer and their relationship with oak trees. Um, the chestnut story. Um, so, I, I don't know the specific trees you're talking about. Uh, I know Baltimore somewhat, uh, but not well enough to sort of know the individual trees here. Um, I think you're talking about a horse chestnut tree. is is my guess. This is a very sort of common issue. So, so the there's a horse chestnut which produces these sort of large um, these large seeds that are encased in sort of a spiny green packet. Um, and they have sort of palmate leaves, they have sort of five leaflets on each leaf and because the name is horse chestnut people often confuse it with the American chestnut but it's actually a completely unrelated tree. Um, That being said, um, two things, one is that um, there are other chestnuts that are not wiped out so there's European varieties and Asian varieties and you do occasionally see those planted in places Um, and there are a few hardy soldiers that have managed to survive The ones that are known in the forest are actually sort of closely kept secrets by foresters and the people that live near them, and there's a big movement um, sponsored by the American Chestnut Society and some other groups to hybridize resistant trees and replant them, and that's actively going on. So we may see a moment when something that looks very similar to the American chestnut and is genetically almost identical returns to the landscape, which would be hugely exciting for a number of reasons. Um, In terms of the deer and oak story, um, so... It's on. Un- I mean, oak. I would say the bigger concern is um, that there the potential for diseases. So out west, they're beginning to have problems with sudden oak death. Um, in the age of globalization and due to some changes, likely thought to be tied to climate change, we're seeing um, a lot of tree diseases showing up. And so any trees can be theoretically vulnerable to this. We're seeing a huge problem with ash trees in the Midwest right now. The emerald ash borer. Um, deer um, are interesting because much like our Tree populations have changed over time. Our animal populations have changed over time. And so deer were a species that themselves in many places were nearly disappeared in the early 20th century. And they've been brought back to such a remarkable length that now in some ways we start to see them as an environmental pest. Um, So the short answer is no, I don't think deer activity itself um, would would do that alone. Um, but at the same time, I would say that much like we need to be sensitive to our role in changing the forest, we need to be sensitive to our role in changing our, plant, our, our animal life. And deer is a prime example of that.
1: I'm curious, as you think about the future of American forests, you touched really briefly on climate change. Mm-hmm. And of course, forests suck up carbon. And um, so what do you think about forest protection and its role in the whole debate
3: about climate change um, it's a it's a great question what are the what is the role of forests in climate change um, and I, I deal with this sort of at, at, at length in in the book and these are complicated issues that when I was writing I, I wish I'd had sort of more space I could give to it then and I wish I had more now um, so one thing is that i i, I Forests, certainly trees can remove carbon from the atmosphere and they effectively are going to make solid-state carbon. Um, At the same time, trees, you know, healthy forest trees are going to die. A healthy forest that exists will reach sort of a stasis point and so the amount of sort of decaying matter should be roughly equivalent to the amount of growing matter um, over time. Now, forest fires can change this sort of story and there's not really sort of a set climax where these things reach to. In theory, if you were to increase the the amount of forest land dramatically around the globe, it could play some role. Um, And I think it's certainly worth um, pursuing as a mitigation uh, device. That being said, I think it is sort of dangerous to put too much faith in tree planting for a number of reasons. One is uh, most of the carbon we're putting into the air is coming from um, the burning of fossil fuels, things that were stored in the ground. It's hard to really imagine that you could offset those levels of carbon exhaust just through growing forests. And also uh, uh, the, the biggest problem, at least based on the current science, is, is through tropical deforestation, um, which is something that, and, you know, a country like the United States can't control directly, we, um, yeah, although I, I wish we were putting more resources towards this, frankly. I think it's something that the global community needs to think more seriously about. But but there certainly could be promise in things like planting forests as carbon sinks where you could have carbon markets. And one, one option would be that sort of paying to have a forest planted as a carbon sink functions in the form of a tax that you could... So, but you need to sort of build these markets. So So my view is that... Trees and forests are part of sort of a holistic approach that you need to address in climate change. I think we need to operate on all fronts, and that certainly includes forests. I wish it was more involved in the conversation than it is right now.
1: Are the uh, forest dogwoods going to die out? Are the what? Forest dogwoods going to die out?
3: Yeah, are the forest dogwoods going to die out? Um I mean, their numbers have certainly been declining, and the evidence suggests that um, that they might. As I understand it, we're still sort of having trouble um, understanding fully the um, the science behind what's happening there, um, and I would say that there's a there's a good chance that their numbers are going to continue declining. Um, again, you know. My view on this is losing species you know when we we don 't talk that much about losing tree species we, when we talk biodiversity, we tend to talk more about animals and, and 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 so my short answer is I wish that we were having a more serious conversation about biodiversity in our own country, but also sort of globally as being about plants as much as animals you know pandas and whatnot tend to get the the covers for what we need to do to protect biodiversity. But the point you raised is a goal, which is that even here in the East right now, we are actually seeing biodiversity decline in many ways and the Dogwoods are a good example of that. Um, I wish I could give you a more concrete answer on what's gonna happen there, but um, I think in the short term, we're gonna continue to see those numbers decline. Um, and you know, one of the things that's remarkable is that um, in 2010, the, the um, government for the first time listed a tree species as endangered due to climate change. So so what's remarkable is that in our current moment we're not only seeing the increasing spread of plant diseases due to globalization but we're also seeing potentially new threats brought about through shifting climate. So this is an issue that I wish that people were being more sensitive about. I mean we tend to talk about forest fires because they happen and there's such an extreme moment and we talk about droughts but I wish we were talking more about these sort of slow changes. You just don't see it dealt with very much.
1: Well, there's nobody behind me, so let me ask another one. Uh, do certain trees not grow in groups or stands? Uh, I'm thinking of the hickory, in particular. I don't think I've ever seen a large group of hickory trees. They seem to
3: occur in yeah, no, it's oak it's it's certainly whatever. true. Yeah, not 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 all trees grow in sort of groups or stands. Um, something like. Um, the American elm, when it would sort of grow, tends to grow near water, and you can often find them in the forest. They're, you're not going to find sort of huge stands of elms. Um, so um, I'm, I'm not actually sure on the, on the hickory. Um, my own experience with hickory is that they tend to exist in oak hickory forests, where you're going to see sort of large numbers of, of hickories populating sort of a, a given tract. Um, but, but yeah, yeah there, there are certainly examples of that.
2: I had the pleasure of talking with you before um, during the reception about the sort of historical role of watershed protection in the history of American forests. And I, would, I was going to ask you if you can say a few words about that to the group. Yeah. About the connection between protecting clean waters and watersheds and protecting forests.
3: Sure. So, so one of the things that um, was interesting to me when I was doing the research is discovering that the, the benefits of trees, are we, we sort of learn them over time. If you were to ask someone in 1650, well, what are the benefits of trees? I think the list they would give you would actually be much shorter than someone of, let's say, an environmentalist bent today. Um, And in particular, a lot of the the potential value of trees and forests, in particular, are being discovered in sort of a policy way in the late 19th century. Most notably is that the watershed, so, so the sources of water supply for um, particularly urban populations, so you know where the water is going to come to a place like Baltimore, it's often going to be originating in forested lands. And those same lands would be subject to logging because that connection from the perspective of the logging company, it didn't really matter to them what the consequences for downstream users, people that might live 60 or 100 or more miles downstream. And in the 19th century, there was a lot of... Um, awareness that protecting the forest was vital to protect the watersheds, that as the forest would go, you'd have higher rates of erosion, and then you start having silted up rivers. And so much of the early conservationists, the early national forests, these are forests that are being created in 1891, 92, 93, those are being created primarily to protect watersheds. And the same is going to be true for the Adirondack Park. The most—the the, the first big advocate, a guy by the name of Verplank Colvin, he's arguing all about the need to protect watersheds and a lot of the money that's going to come organized protected is through um, business communities in New York that are afraid of the long-term fate of the Hudson that also want to protect watersheds. So the relationship of forest and trees to water in America is is really at the heart of this story, particularly at the heart of the conservation story. So thanks for asking that question because I really like talking about this moment. You know, so much is happening in the late 19th century in terms of the federal government's relationship to trees, state governments, that's when we first get forestry commissions, the way that a lot of citizens, private citizens are thinking about what trees can do, watershed protection, there's concerns of a timber famine in the United States, not to mention game preserve. So all of these roles, we're starting to learn these values of trees, and then there'll be sort of another era that comes, I think, in our more modern period when we start thinking about trees as biodiversity protection. So the best example there is the spotted owl story. You would never, I mean, the idea of protecting old-growth trees to save an animal that lives in them is a predator, no less, is really, you wouldn't have found that sort of thinking anywhere in 19th century America. But we sort of keep discovering these new values we'll probably continue to discover new values. We're
1: going to take one more question. Thank you. Um, can you, you talked a little about um, American elm. Mm-hmm. Um, and I had a huge American elm, uh, but it died due to Dutch elm disease. Mm-hmm. And around the same time, I was finding out that uh, in Central Park, uh, they were dying as well. And Frederick Olmsted, the developer, who is uh, within New York as well as down here, to, planted a lot of them. Can you tell me the plight of the American elm and can you, um, is it still an issue with Dutch elm disease? Yeah,
3: um, sure. Um, so, so this is a story that um, I tell at length in the book. I mean, you could arguably fill, and, and actually theres uh, there, there is some literature on this, you could really fill a book just telling the stories of tree diseases and what they've done to the landscape. I tell the story of the American elm and American chestnut at length those two trees are so iconic what they represent. The chestnut is the workhorse of the American economy. You know, rail ties, telegraph poles, furniture, I mean, and not to mention chestnuts that you can eat. The elm is the aesthetic tree. It was described by um, an early um, botanist as the most magnificent vegetable in the entire world. Sort of interesting. Um, And what happened was... um, People have been planting elms as um, in, in a serious way in New England sort of starting the late 18th century and then there was sort of another craze in the middle of the 19th century. And by the late 19th century, most major urban areas across the country, I mean, including California and Texas and the Midwest, would have these long avenues planted with elms because if you've ever had the privilege of sort of seeing one of these canopies, and there actually still is one inside of Central Park. It's one of the biggest ones anywhere. Um, If if, if you just plant these sort of long columns, they form this beautiful sort of cathedral-like setting that you can, you know, walk beneath. And this became the American aesthetic in many cities would be to have these long canopies, um, American elm canopies. And so Dutch elm disease is going to, it it actually first shows up in Europe, and it's going to get discovered um, in America in the 1930s. And um, there'll be huge efforts to try to save the American elms, And um, it actually seems like it's going to be successful for a while, but a number of forces converge. The the most notable one is probably World War II. Government resources get shifted away from things like trying to fight against this um, increasing tide of Dutch elm disease because they're concerned about fighting Nazis. In fact, you can sort of argue that one of the unfortunate um, consequences of the effort to defeat the Nazis is that we lose the fight against Dutch elm disease. And um, unlike chestnut blight, it won't be quite as total. There are a lot more ways that you can actually save elm trees, which is why we still see them in many places. Um, we just don't really see um, these sort of long avenues anymore. Um, and, and, the, and the range of Dutch elm disease actually continues to, to grow. I have some slides, obviously I don't, I don't have them here, where you can see even sort of into our current day, you can still see the range expanding. Um, and so what's happened is we've had more sort of advanced techniques on how to live with the disease and how to manage individuals. Trees. So oftentimes if you see old elms, odds are good that someone, uh, city government, private individuals, whomever, has been spending money to treat that tree, to keep that tree alive.
1: Okay, that's it. Listen, I want everyone to know that we have some very valuable first edition copies of Eric Redgell's book, American Canopy for Sale, out front. That will be even more valuable after he signs them for you. So you should buy his book. Thanks to everybody for coming, and thanks again to Judy Cooper and the Pratt for hosting us.
3: Thank, thank you. Thank everybody for coming. I appreciate it.